Our text is the 22nd Psalm. We will continue Luke's Gospel after Easter. Psalm 22. Let us with reverence and awe bow before the Lord our God. Our Father, another opportunity is now given to us to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed. And we believe that the reading, and especially the preaching of the Word of God, is the chief way in which you have determined to convert the lost and upbuild the saints. And we ask that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired this sacred text, will so illumine our minds and our hearts and this page that we, having seen Christ here, would love you more and adore you more greatly and revel in the greatness of the purpose and plan of our great God for our salvation. And ask also that those who may be among us today who are self-centered and not Christ-centered who have never given themselves up in faith to Jesus Christ, but desire to hold to themselves their own lives and their own ways as if we belong to ourselves, that lost people today would come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord. May the Holy Spirit bless the reading and exposition of this word to our hearts is our fervent prayer in the name of our exalted head and king, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Will you take your copy of God's word and stand as we read now God's word, the 22nd Psalm. This is the word of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. This psalm, Psalm 22, has been called the Gospel According to David. We really don't know its background. Most psalms you can read and say, well, we can understand how this related, a psalm of David, to the life of David. And then we can see from that that yet there are portions of a psalm that even though they relate to the life of David, must push us ahead by divine prophecy to the Christ because the psalm simply cannot sustain the language. But I, for one, cannot find anything in David's life that corresponds precisely to this psalm. There are other commentators who actually have come to the conclusion that this is prophecy in its purest form. That is to say, not beginning with David as a type and pushing us on to Christ as the fulfillment of that type, but that this is simply all about Christ from beginning to end and has nothing to do with the life of David at all. Well, be that as it may, and whatever your conclusion may be, none but the Lord Jesus can bear the weight of the description here. It is a dark, dark 
explanation of the cross, but also, as we see at the end of the psalm, a victorious explanation of what Christ has done for us sinners. And having looked at this today and come to the table together as a congregation, we should leave here saying, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord, by whom the world has been crucified unto me and I unto the world. We should leave here great boasters, boasters not in self, but boasters in Jesus, boasters in the cross, uh, boasters in his atonement and in his redemptive work. Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, said these words, and I think that they set up well the attitude with which we should look at this psalm. He was not commenting on the psalm, but simply upon the cross. Carnock said, Let us look upon a crucified Christ, the remedy of all our miseries. His cross hath procured a crown. His passion hath expiated our transgression. His death has disarmed the law. His blood hath washed a believer's soul. This death is the destruction of our enemies, the spring of our happiness, and the eternal testimony of divine love. Let that attitude fill your heart and mine as we now turn to the 22nd Psalm. And as we turn to this Psalm, we see, first of all, forsaken by God. Our Savior is forsaken by His Father on the cross. These opening words you know so well. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And David writes this by divine inspiration. And 1,000 years later, Jesus Christ cries these very words from the cross. An infinite suffering as Christ bore our sins. Why this cry of anguish? Because it pleased the Lord to crush him, putting him to grief. He cried these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because of the unknown sufferings, the the things that no man could have seen as he bore within his own body and soul the weight of the infinite wrath of Almighty God. The Father brought three hours of suffering darkness upon him, pouring out his infinite wrath. Why is Jesus upon the cross? to do away with sin. Why so infinitely cursed? Because God is so infinitely holy. Verse 3, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. And there upon the cross, he is truly forsaken. In verses 4 and 5, the psalmist says, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Our fathers trusted in thee. Had God ever forsaken one of our fathers? The answer to that question is no, never. But Christ is forsaken in his suffering. And he was forsaken in his suffering, believer, because he was your sin-bearer. He bore your sin before the holy God. And then he cries out in verse 6, I am a worm and no man. Imagine this, the great I am became man and went to a cross, and the I am says, I am a worm. 
and no man. Why? Because God cannot fellowship with sin. Because we read in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And this curse of the law that we have broken, this infinitely holy law of an infinitely holy God, this curse is universal to all men except those for whom Christ bore the curse, except for those who are pardoned by the redeeming blood of Christ. Neither death nor hell has any power over those who are bought at the high cost of Jesus' own shed blood and who have trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins. His punishment was in value, measurable to our sins, indeed exceeding in measure our sins. William Perkins the Puritan said, one man in a breach may stand against a whole army and bear the brunt of it. Why may not the manhood of Christ supported by the Godhead bear the stress of the whole wrath of God? And that is what he did. His manhood, his true manhood, supported by his divine nature in perfect union, enables him to bear the weight of the infinite wrath of Almighty God in the place of sinners like you and like me. He was forsaken by God because we would have been forsaken by God in hell forever, and he took the place of our forsakenness. Then as we move in the psalm, we see that he also was forsaken by men. Looking down from the cross, what did our Lord behold? Well, in verses 6 through 8, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is the crowd who had cried, crucify him, crucify him. The thief mocked, the onlookers said, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. What had he ever done but good? He had healed the sick, he had raised the dead, he had spread the word of God, but there was none to help him. Verses 9 through 11, yet You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. What overwhelmingly kind providence attended Christ from his birth. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. But now he calls out from the very belly of hell. And there is none to help him. And he looks down from the cross and he sees, verses 12 and 13, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. He looks down from the cross, our Savior, and he sees men like bulls pawing the ground in anger and dust flying and rage filling their nostrils. Or to change the metaphor, the psalmist says he looks down from the cross and he sees men opening their mouths like roaring, devouring lions. 
Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Don't tell me that men are not totally depraved. We put Jesus Christ on a cross. The case for the total depravity of men is Jesus Christ hanging on a cross and all men not loving him. The case for my total depravity is that my sin put him there. That in order for me to be saved and redeemed, it required the infinitely valuable shed blood of Jesus Christ, forsaken of God, forsaken of men. But then the psalm becomes so explicit, doesn't it? Thirdly, forsaken on the cross. Crucifixion was not a Jewish form of punishment, and yet here it is so clearly foretold. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. And so we begin to have a glimpse of the intense perspiration, the intense suffering, the bones, the the shoulders, the pelvis out of joint. And his heart is affected, his literal heart. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. We are told by Paul in Romans 3 that Jesus was set forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That means he was our wrath bearer on the cross. John Gill, one of the old commentators, says, If the heart of Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, melted at God's wrath, what heart can endure or hands be strong when God deals with them in his wrath? If Jesus' heart melted like wax as he bore the wrath of Almighty God, do you, unbeliever, who have not yet trusted in Christ, think that your heart will be able to stand before the wrath of Almighty God? And so we see the extreme unbelievable thirst as he was roasted as our paschal lamb and laid in the dust of death, the psalm says. And from the cross, he sees dogs encompass him. In verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. His hands and feet pierced. And so the Lord, the risen Lord, shows his disciples the wounds in his hands and in his feet. In verse 17, I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. And at the cross, at the foot of the cross, the soldiers actually gambled for Christ's garments. Verse 18, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. John 19, 24 quotes, this very verse from Psalm 22 as the soldiers gamble for the garments of our Savior. In verse 20, he says, Deliver my soul from the sword because his soul is pierced with the sword of divine vengeance as surely as his body was pierced with nails and with spear. 
Zechariah 13, 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. But then as we, as we see in this psalm, behold, the terror of the cross of Jesus Christ, we also begin to read of a cry for resurrection. And in verses 20, 21 and 22, there's a turn in the whole tone of the psalm. I will tell of your name to my brothers, he says, as he cries out that he would be saved from the mouth of the lion. In verse 22, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you is actually quoted in Hebrews 2.12. The gloom of the cross now passes, and we see, fourthly, forsaken, but triumphant. God smiles again upon his son. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried unto him. Yes, the Lord Jesus cried for deliverance from the tomb. He cried that, you know, in Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Actually, it's, it's ex thanatu, out of death. He prayed to be delivered out of death. And he was granted his prayer. And he was raised from the tomb on the third day. And now good news will spread over the globe because of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection. And we are told that in verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord May your hearts live forever, implying great blessing, great gospel blessing, powerful effusions of the Holy Spirit, and indeed, due to God's sovereign will, the Messiah Prince will rule in the hearts of earthly potentates. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over nations. His kingdom will be boundless. A messianic banquet is coming. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. In verse 30, we are told a seed, a posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. And what will that coming generation, that's you by the way, what will that coming generation purchase by his shed blood for whom he gave his life on the cross, for whom he rose from the dead? What will that seed, that posterity proclaim? Verse 31, They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. That he has done what? That he has done it. That we will now go into the world and proclaim, it is finished. Christ bought my soul from hell. 
Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And we publish to a needy world the truth and reality that through Christ Jesus, lost sinners can now be saved. We go and we proclaim we did not do it. We could never have done it, but He did it. Finished, complete, sufficient atonement for sins, the finished work of Christ, to which you add no work, no merit, nothing of your own. Justice completely satisfied, God is well pleased with his own Son. And so we see victory here, do we not? Because his blood lacks nothing it perfects forever. Carnock, the Puritan on Hebrews 12, 23 says, the blood of Christ shall still the waves and expel the filth and crown the soul with an everlasting victory. The spirits of just men are then made perfect. Now this is a solemn, awesome view from the cross. Don't you find it amazing? A thousand years Before Jesus goes to the cross, here we read of his sacrifice on the tree. And here is described our Savior's crucifixion, the desolate cry, the light and the darkness, the mocking crowd, the casting lots for his garments, the crucifixion, the bones out of joint, the excruciating pain, perspiration, heart affected by torture, hands and feet pierced, nakedness and shame. It's all here and defies naturalistic explanation. The Spirit of Christ indwelt David, and 1,000 years before the cross, Jesus, through David, describes his own crucifixion from the perspective of the cross itself. For you see, God in counsel decreed this day. The cross is no accident. He purposed it for our salvation. Now, Christian... We're entering into a very blessed time of the year. There should be no time in which we're not concerned to meditate upon Christ and his cross and his death and his shed blood and his resurrection. But in a very special way, we have an opportunity to reflect upon these things and to actually take the gospel into the world. Contemplating these things should do three things for you. Contemplating the truth of Psalm 22 should deepen your repentance. Because what is repentance? It is the response of a gracious heart to the mercy of God in Christ. And so it should deepen your repentance. It should awaken your praise. Are we so accustomed to hearing, Jesus died for my sins, he rose from the dead, that we almost yawn when we hear it? Or does it awaken Deeper and deeper reflection that leads to deeper and deeper praise within your heart. Isaac Ambrose, one of the Puritans, says in one of his works, as he contemplates the cross, he says, is it possible that Christ should die, suffer, shed his blood for me, that the Son of God should become man, live amongst men, and die such a death of the cross for such a one as I am? I cannot believe it. It is an abyss past fathoming. The more I consider it, the more I'm amazed at it. 
Now that's it. That should be the attitude of your heart and mind. Did he do this for me? Did he shed his blood for me? Did he bear the wrath of God for me? I'm, I'm utterly amazed. And I will tell you this. So many of the problems in our lives, the moral compromises, the temptations that seem so strong, so many of these things would weaken their grip if we would contemplate the cross and simply be lost in wonder, love, and praise. That's good counsel. And then thirdly, believer, it should cause you to strive for holiness of life. Because you are saved, because your guilt is removed, the believer should want to say, I don't want anything to do with sin that nailed my Savior to the cross. I don't want anything to do with it. I want to have a heart that is, that is free from these things. More and more I want to, to have a sanctified life. I want to live for Jesus as husband, as wife, as child, as student, as worker, in my everyday living. I don't want a heart that's simply moved by these things when I hear them on Sunday. I want a heart that is moved by these things preached on Sunday every day. That's what it should do for you. But now let me also speak to unbelievers who are here today. And I pray that more and more we will see unbelievers come to know Christ in our services of worship. And if you are not saved by Christ's blood, you are bypassing the only way that your guilt can be forgiven. The only way. It will not come through philosophy. It will not come through attempting good works. It will not come through any merit of your own. It will not come through religious exercises. It will not come through Buddhist meditation. There's only one way your guilt will be removed, and that is the Son of God hanging on a tree. And if you bypass it, then it will simply bind your sin faster to you. Again, Karnak says, unbelief locks the, sins, locks the sins on more strongly so that the violations of the law stick closer to him and the wrath of God hangs over him. Every time you hear the gospel and reject the gospel, your heart grows harder to the gospel and your sin becomes deeper. The sin of rejecting Christ is added to your sins. But the blood of Christ is the only way to be acceptable to God. Any attempt of your own just adds to your condemnation. God cannot simply show mercy. It must be just mercy. Justice must be met. The price must be paid. And so I'm sure I'm talking with someone here today and you've never, you've never stood before God as a sinner. You've, you've just never done it. You've never, you've never stood before God as a sinner. There's always, oh, I'm a sinner, you might say, but there's always some excuse. You really think you're a pretty good fellow. You've never stood before God as a sinner. Maybe you know objectively the truth, perhaps, but it's never gripped your soul. May the Lord make you see your sin. Because you see, for you too, there is a way of escape if you trust alone Jesus Christ as the substitute of sinners. I repeat it, for you too, there is a way of escape from the wrath of God. 
If you trust in Jesus Christ, the wrath bearer, the sin bearer, and there is no other way. Now, you know, we don't, we don't dwell as we ought upon the beauty of our God, the beauty of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the beauty of the purpose of God, the beauty of the plan of redemption. You know we don't. Let's start doing it, shall we? And I bring this illustration to you. It's not original with me. It comes from Joel Beakey. I'm not sure what he was preaching. Don't, don't remember. But I remember, I remember this. And evidently it was a true story. Dr. Beakey says there was a, a young man and uh, he was blind. He couldn't see. And he fell in love with this young woman who could see, and she fell in love with him. She said, you know, even though you're blind, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. And so they planned to marry. Now the doctor says to the family, you know, I really think there, there's a, an operation that's now available. It wasn't available in the past. It's available, and I, I think I can help your son so that he can, he can actually see. So they talk it over with the young man. He says yeah, I'd like to do this on this condition. You've told me that my eyes have to be wrapped with a bandage for two weeks. I want it time so that that's the day that I first see my wife, if I'm able to see. And so they do that. On his wedding day, he can see. And he sees his wife coming down the aisle. And he says, oh, my dear, you're more beautiful than ever I had imagined. The bridegroom saw his bride for the first time. Now let's reverse it. You are the bride. Jesus is the bridegroom. Now you look through a glass darkly. Oh, we know something of his beauty, but let me tell you, in that day, when you stand before him and you see his wounds, when you stand before him and you see his face, you will say, the half has never been told. Oh, how beautiful you are. How beautiful is the redemption. How beautiful the purchase price. How beautiful the Savior who has done this. Oh, how beautiful, how beautiful. How lovely is Christ. How beautiful the triune God. How beautiful your purpose to save a sinner like me. That's what you will say one of these days. But let's begin it now, may we? to as much as possible dwell upon the beauty of our Savior, even though seeing through a glass darkly through the page of Holy Scripture, now let us see the beauty of Christ. And over this entire season, as we dwell upon the cross and resurrection of our Lord, let us, let us be moved by the beauty of our glorious, wonderful Savior who shed His blood to redeem us from our sins. For we sing, do we not... When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson like a robe spreads o'er his body on the tree 
Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Demands your soul, your life, your all. And God's people said, Amen.